every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. everyone, and welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch before, so this is going to be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, and talking with me today, um, actor, writer, director, comedian, Musician, former podcaster, renaissance man, and the Tennille to my captain, my good friend, Ken Edwards. Ken, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going, man? It is wonderful and such an honor to be your uh, multi-hyphenate. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do a lot of stuff, my friend. I, tr- I try. Uh, yeah, it's like, it's like we've been podcasting together for like five or six years now. And like at that point, I had a podcast to remote like several podcasts remote. Now I've dropped all of them and I used to do movies and did a lot of comedy and now I'm in a band. So I don't, I don't know what's next by the time I'm on the next episode, next season, you guys, I'll be, maybe I'll be president. Who knows? Oh, we can, uh, I would vote. I would vote for you. I would, <laughs> I would ballot stuff for you, man. <laughs> Voter um, fraud just to get me in there. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, we've podcasted many times before, so this represents, I I've known some of my previous guests prior to actually recording the podcast. Many of my, the guests in the previous conversations have been like, we, we just met for the purposes of recording. So this is the first time that I have a, a like good longtime friend joining me for the podcast. I, it, it'll be interesting to see what that does to the dynamic of this recording uh i suspect will be a lot uh goofier than i have been on previous episodes so listeners be aware of that yeah you you've been dipping your toes into conversations with dead people finally paul's gonna warm up to this temperature or i guess like cool down i guess vampires don't have very warm skin you gotta like feel that under earth uh level of of a grave that we've dug ourselves into like you're seven episodes in or whatever now paul so just like cool down Get comfy. Time to be dead. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just going to lay down here on the floor then and let you do all the heavy lifting. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cam, before we get into this, uh, why don't you let everybody know what your history with Buffy the Vampire Slayer is? All righty. I love Lost. Lost is like my favorite show ever. In fact, every episode of every podcast I've ever done with Paul, I uh, make a point to... <laughs> fit it in somewhere referentially 
Um, but that was my, uh, when I started getting into like genre television. And so I got super into the behind the scenes of like the writers and stuff. And Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were always citing uh, Buffy as one of their main influences. And then they would go on to like hire people from Buffy on that show. And so naturally, as soon as Lost ended, I was like, I need to dig into uh, this show that everyone says is great anyway, um, because I, I have no more of my own genre show that I love so much to get into. And, and uh, you know, my friends who are already Buffy heads were saying, like, and you'll see, you'll see the influence here, like, and you'll love it just as much. And I, I didn't think that they were right, but, like, it's so close. Like, it is easily my second favorite show ever. Um I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I, I saw that run, like I said, in 2010 when Lost ended. I, I watched the whole uh, series. And then uh, that next year, I got someone else into it. So that was fun to revisit it uh, and see someone else watching it through fresh eyes like I just had. And then uh, that year, I also watched Angel. So it's been fun going back through this, like following your episodes and rewatching all of these because... I didn't realize how long it had been since I watched all of them, yet how clearly so many of my memories from going through it are. Like, so much of it sticks out because, like, the characterization is just so good. Any other shows, like, uh, you know, I've seen a fair amount of X-Files and, and, and other procedurals with, like, you know, just cases of the week or monsters of the week, and you can't really, after so many years, you can't differentiate them, and I'm just, like astounded by how much when when we decided we'd be talking about ted and bad eggs today i hadn't rewatched them yet but like i knew immediately what those episodes involved what the themes were like it all just is is there and in a way that i i think makes buffy such a great show but you don't realize it the first time through like i remember my first time going through the first season you know it was with a friend who wanted me to love the show and i was kind of just like waiting for the greatness that had been promised to me and then like when i rewatched the show i was like showing it to someone else new so i was still like waiting for them to get into it so i was like man season one's a slog but now that i'm watching it alone season one and two are like i'm realizing like season one is good it's really legit good for a first season of a show and season two is like so close to being great it is like on the precipice just like wanting to have like the confidence of of knowing it can like fulfill arcs over the course of a season and a series rather than just an episode and i feel like by this point in season two where we're talking about today it really starts to like dig in to uh having that confidence of knowing it can set stuff up for later um but we'll get into that later. I, I've just really been enjoying this rewatch and having your show as an excuse to get back into it. And it all holds up. It's just it's just one of the best shows ever. I, 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 and that's where I'm at with Buffy. <laughs> so, I, listeners, I, in my sort of intro bio for uh, Mr. Edwards here, I mentioned he was a former podcaster. And he said that he used to be doing podcasts. He's a... He, always was and obviously still is a much better podcaster than I am, even with all of my years of experience. Um, so I really am just at some point I'm going to keel over dead and, uh, and let Ken take over the show. He clearly has a passion and knows what he's talking about. So into every dinner generation, a podcast Buffy host is born. <laughs> I guess I, it's all right. I'll be your Kendra. Oh, the kindred to your captain, whatever, Neil. <laughs> All right. Um, 
Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I, I can't wait to hear um like in the show notes for the last episode, episode nine, uh, when I was sort of teasing who my next guest was going to be, I may or may not have made reference to the fact that you have a certain reputation for bringing the meta text <laughs> to any discussion. <laughs> I can't wait to see where that goes with these two episodes. So don't, oh boy. don't disappoint me. You're on the spot now, Ken. All right. So, so like a good Buffy episode, you've set up a theme that we can revisit at the end. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, all right. Which brings me to the dreaded spoiler warning for listeners. Uh, if for some reason this is your first time tuning in conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, you press pause on this podcast and go do that right now. Ken and I will be waiting right here for you when you get back. Um, and with that taken care of, Ken, if you're ready, let's go to work. I'm all about it. I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that every, every human who hears that uh, uh, goes, man, I don't have the time to do that right now, but... You've got that. You've got a fair audience of dead people. I have to imagine like the spikes and the angels out there. They're like, I've got nothing but time. Drew, let's get on the couch. Let's click on some flicks, some Hulu's, whatever the kids are calling it these days. <laughs> uh, I, I just imagine that no one has yet made it through a single episode of this podcast because I keep telling them to press pause and go watch the entire seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and five seasons of Angel before they continue listening. So I'm, I'm literally talking into the void right now at some point, like a year from now, people will finally start getting through a full episode of this podcast. But yeah, you're, you're setting yourself up for long-term success. Right. Whatever you sacrifice now is, is a victory later. I'm glad you've been reading yourself help books, Paul. <laughs> right. I do what I can. <laughs> All right, so uh, like you said, today we're discussing episodes 211, Ted, and 212, Bad Eggs. So let's start off with Ted. Ken, I can't wait. Tell me why you were interested in discussing these two episodes, um, starting with Ted. Okay, well, I mean, to be totally honest and uh, transparent here, Pretend I'm a, a, a vampire looking into a mirror. Uh, how many of these dumbass references can I make throughout the show? Um, I, I chose these two episodes because they were the first. It was it was the first marking on your calendar that didn't have a guest, and you know I wanted to get in early to establish a rapport with your audience. I didn't want them to first hear me when we're in some season six stuff. The stuff I am really excited to be talking about later in the show, but. Uh, yeah, these are cells that I felt like uh, I I could bring something to the table for. They're not quite as like monumental as what's my line, uh, like having a two parter, like the the series going full on. Like, look, we are serialized. Get used to it. Like, uh, th these are still sort of monster of the week things, but um, I think they are really representative of why. Buffy uh, continues to work, you know, like we've got uh, so, so many themes going on, like with the uh, parental stuff and the responsibility of, of being a good parent. That's in both of these episodes mm -hmm. and the consequences of uh, 
sex and uh, horm- how confusing hormones can be. And that's all really setting up, uh, um, you know, what's going to happen near the end of this season where uh, Buffy and Angel finally, like, uh, can't take it anymore. And uh, I believe and, I believe and, that's actually next week. <laughs> oh, wow. OK. Yes. Like I said, it's been a minute since I, since I saw this stuff. So that's that's exciting. And, and that actually makes it more uh, more appropriate that these two episodes are um, hitting that nail on the head, like back to back, getting you ready uh, in that mindset to uh, approach those issues. Um, because, you know, it, the show needed to make sure that these kids have an understanding of uh, that stuff before we could blame them on where things might go afterwards. <laughs> and I think the hardest part about watching this series, like the older you get is like, uh, you know, like I said, six or seven years ago when I was watching this stuff, I was closer in age to these high schoolers. And it's hard to remember because they're be- being played by such, you know, skilled, barely adults that mm-hmm. these are kids. Like it, it, everything is based on their feeling. It's, it's, they can be they can be taught things they can analyze things but no matter how frustrating uh, their actions might be at any given moment or how stupid something might seem or how immature something is it's like they are going off what feels right to them in high school the most confusing part of our life and it's about like how high school makes you grow up and the reason buffy is such an incredible show is because it it takes you on that entire journey of like dealing with the meaning of growing up into actually applying that into a grown up world. The way the show transitions from high school to college and beyond is just on another level. And um, this show or these two episodes in like the smack dab in the middle of the second season uh, of a genre show that's going to bring forth so much more and influence so much more, not having a second season slump. This is just like prime, uh, prime buffiness right here before the show like uh starts firing on all cylinders yeah you said that uh you confessed that you signed up for these episodes because they were like the first episodes that hadn't been claimed um there there are a number of those Uh, i was actually surprised when i first set out the the sort of mailing and asked for people to sign up for and what they were interested in discussing there are some uh, that are coming up later, even this season, I think that I was surprised didn't go quicker, but, um, kudos to you for jumping in the first, uh, like open availability that does put you, I would say in the uncomfortable position, but I'm sure you'll turn it into an advantage. You, you mentioned, um, what's my line, the two-parter, which was the previous episode. And then next week is surprise and innocence, which is another two-parter and it's a pretty big deal two-parter. So you have sandwiched yourself between two pretty significant sort of moments in the series. Um, so you get to be the sort of cream filling in the Buffy Oreo. I don't know. That's a terrible (laughs) analogy. I, I was trying to keep it PG there. But yeah, we all we all like the cream more. <laughs> right. So it's impossible to keep a PG. <laughs> as Angel and Buffy will soon tell us. True. Very true. Very true. Anyways, so also the, also interestingly like what's my line it, it feels like the show going like um besides all the stuff that happens in it plot-wise it feels like it's solidifying the fact that uh Spike slash Drusilla is going to be a continuing ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. They weren't just like setups to be like a big bad, like in school hard or something. School hard might've been implying that you don't know at that point when you're going through it for the first time, but it felt like 
last last week, these last uh, what's my line was like, OK, so be prepared to see Spike again. That's not going to go away. And, you know, we'll see them uh, in the next episodes you're going to discuss. But here it's like after getting such a big dose of uh, Spike affecting the show, it, it is two episodes in a row of us going back to live a life where we enjoyed Buffy pre-Spike, and you're suddenly like, but wait, I, I want more of that handsome British man. Why can't he be involved in, in these episodes? Well, but in, in, one of, in one of these episodes, we get a handsome Texan. Not, tr- not true at all. That is not true at all. <laughs> I, I, I love Lyle Gort. He's a, he's a hilarious character, but he does not hold a candle to Spike. But anyways, right. we'll get there. <laughs> in this first one, we do get uh, Mr. John Ritter, the late great john ritter um yes i someone who i'm not incredibly familiar with to be honest really like I, I yeah i don't know what i would have seen him in before this i never saw his sitcom what was it three's company what show did he... yeah i never watched an episode of three's company oh man um, i was all prepared to to like dive into your your stand-up comic uh side and did you know, discuss the comic chops of uh, John Ritter. Yeah, I've only heard tale of uh, of his legend, but mm. I, I, you know, I respect him. This, he's he's got a great character in this episode. He gets to do a lot in the forty minutes that are given to him on this show before he's you know thrown on the trashy junk junk pile. <laughs> um, so let's see how. Uh, what can we discuss on this? Okay, well we, we we've talked about. Um, What's my line a couple times now? I, I'll just say that when I was discussing uh, what's my line part one and part two, I mentioned so in those episodes they introduced the order of Taraka, which are wait is that it Taraka? Is that what they were? I think that's what it was, the sort of group of badass assassins that had been sicked on Buffy, mm-hmm. and uh, those episodes made a big deal out of how badass and and relentless and like. How the, the the order of Taraka would never give up. They would just keep sending assassins after you until you're dead. And I was like, "Does that is that true? Because I don't remember if the order of Taraka ever comes back." And so here we are in Ted. Like practically the first line of the episode is a little voiceover line of them saying, "Yeah, according to Angel sources, they've called off the assassination contract." And I was like, "Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that that explains it right there." They decided, "Yeah." I guess we need to explain why we're not going to see an assassin every week. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, now that Bones is over, when the, when the Angel prequel series airs, uh, they'll be able to <laughs> feature Angel getting that information in an episode. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, did Have you noticed that the front door of Buffy's house like changes in virtually every episode? <laughs> no, I have not. But that's a fun detail. I mean, sounds like the magic of the Hellmouth man. I I think, uh, I think sometimes it's got the three little windows in it, and other times I think it's just a solid door. And I know for a fact that, like in one episode, it'll open, it'll open in to the right, and then in other episodes, like in this one, it opens in to the left. I don't know. It's a weird little detail that is completely insignificant, but I notice it every time they open the front door. I'm like, oh, that's not the same door as last episode. I think uh, I think that's the show going back and forth between the two different timelines and realities, <laughs> the one where Dawn exists and the one where Dawn doesn't exist. It's just those, when you're seeing some door, 
uh, Dawn's just off screen. Like she's she's like slaying vampires with Buffy or something, or, or upstairs oh. in her room. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's it's actually foreshadowing to season five stuff, Paul. I I love to be able. I'm glad I could be here to point that out to you. That's amazing. So when we start discussing season five, we're gonna have to. I'm gonna have to start keeping track. I'm gonna make note of what episodes. It's gonna be feature. all the same door by season five. Yeah. Yeah. The the timelines converge. Okay. All right. So what else do we get in this? Um. Uh, another robot. Mm-hmm. I, 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 one of the things that I had forgotten and have rediscovered, um, on rewatch is how heavily, uh, like how early in the series they dropped so many robots. Robots are kind of a big deal when we get to season, <laughs> is it, is it season, it's season five where the robots really come in, but, um, yeah, we've gotten at least two significant robotic episodes so far yeah and and there's there's a the only connective tissue i can see between either of those and they really have nothing to do with each other uh i don't think but maybe you can tell me if you see one is uh the first robot episode is i robot eugene in the first season where we're introduced to uh miss calendar right and that's so that's the first time uh her and giles connect like the internet get it and then this episode with a robot is when they reconnect. Oh, look at you. Yeah, I'm all about trying to track uh, like Jenny's appearances based on whatever the hell is going on with Angel in that particular episode. Uh, listeners are going to get so tired of me mentioning, oh yeah, the first time we hear from Jenny in this episode is right after they mention Angel. But uh, good catch on the fact that clearly Jenny Calendar is secretly a robot and she's connected to all... She is the reason all of these robots keep popping up in the series. I know, like Giles is just trying to stay away from all uh, connections to uh, the outside world, and she keeps coming back, sucking him back in. And new, newfangled technology, the younger people, man, Rupert Giles just, just, just wants to be alone in his library, and uh, and she's ruining his dreams, as you can clearly tell by the end of this episode. <laughs> right. Yes. Just... Uh, all right. Um... Which is another fun uh, bookend is uh, the episode opens and closes with adults kissing. Oh, yeah. The, the cold open in this episode, um, I kind of liked just because it's so obviously the metaphor of the week here or whatever, the, the sort of after school specialness of this episode is the, you know, teenager with a single parent dealing with the fact that their parent is still a sexual being. Um, but I, I liked how the cold open ended with, Buffy walking in on uh, her mom and Ted and just her complete inability to like form words <laughs> and yeah. her silent stare at the camera as it cuts into the opening credits. Yeah, I am. Uh, I, I continue to be stupid. Like it's, it's ignorant or, or stupid or just something that I can't get over. I am continue to be amazed that uh, anytime they actually say the word sex or, or like uh, stuff like, ass or damn uh just like as this tv show which is like borderline for kids in the late 90s you know i grew up in the 90s where like all of that was supposed to be seen as like you don't say that stuff on tv or even talk about sex like i still even every episode even though i know these episodes are talking about the consequences of sex i expect it to all be implied going into it but no they just (laughs) talk about hormones and sex and 
orgies. I remember a few episodes ago they made an orgy joke. I'm yeah. like, wow, they really just don't care. Yeah, that that was uh, I think that was Reptile Boy where there was a particularly casual exchange between Willow and Xander, uh, where he was talking about how he was going to go to the frat party, and she was like maybe catch an orgy and he's like yeah if there's one there or something like that mm-hmm. um, yeah as one of these episodes uh finally states uh, actually i think it's this one i think it's it's ted uh, where giles says the subtext is rapidly becoming text yes <laughs> so some of the metaphors i remember being a little more metaphorical than they actually are they're they are quite on the nose in a few cases but mm-hmm and actually here in this episode uh they or no no it's bad eggs where they spell the word sex like they cut to the sex ed teacher uh it's right after uh Xander and Cordy in the closet i think mhm is that what it is mm-hmm. damn it i've lost it sounds track. right i've lost track but anyways at one point they cut to uh the sex ed teacher writing the word sex on the chalkboard in big letters and saying s e x let's talk about sex mhm um it goes there it goes there yeah so how does uh how does ted buchanan uh rate against moloch the previous the, the robot demon from the first season <laughs> i think ted is a bit more interesting just because i i like how they've set him up in this world first of all i think it's interesting on a structural level how long the show makes us believe he's just a guy before the robot reveal Mm -hmm. even going so far as to let us believe he's dead and have buffy have to deal with the stress and the uh depression and the not knowing how to deal with the fact that she killed a person even though she's actually killed a a person before (laughs) like let's let's just forget that she's killed human assassins right right forget that those were actual people as well um but but I th- I think Ted is interesting because okay they make him a salesman like he's the t- he's the top salesman at his company and uh, he he seemingly has like everything you know suburban single white mother Joyce needs like he'll you know in the late nineties you needed someone to teach you how to how to set up your computer and get you the internet. And, right. And uh, he, he's able to do that, which made her life at the job so much easier. And, and, you know, he's number one in his team because, you know, he, he understands the idea of, of risk and reward, which he comments on later to Buffy. Like, like that's how he became top salesman in his company. And like, he has the, um, uh, uh, the abilities, the, the, the money to set up something like a wedding two months out if that's what he wanted to do. Um, but the second anything doesn't go his way, like that's when you find out Ted is like a crazy asshole. He's the, Ted is the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. As long as capitalism is working as it should and the man is uh, in charge of the women in the household, Ted makes everything feel great. But the second either of them wants to do or even think anything that is not in line with Ted's programming, which is a perfect uh, way to think of the mindset of the entitled white man, uh, then then he just short short circuits in a metaphorical sense before doing so later, you know. And I so I think the layers of having him uh, uh just doing the double language, which they're so good of in this show of, of short circuiting and, 
and in a literal and metaphorical sense and having him be a businessman and and have him uh be the provider who cooks and does every like the you know the quote-unquote perfect guy Mm -hmm. just showing that that doesn't exist is like so interesting and uh i i think to to conquer all of that and make a statement on uh capitalism and the patriarchy all through the uh use of a robot in one episode is pretty cool (laughs) so i i'm sad that you don't have like a history with john redder because i i I wish that we could talk a little bit about the sort of contrast. Now, John Ritter, he he had an acting career outside of Three's Company, but Three's Company tends to be what people thought of him as. And uh, um, I'm not intimately familiar with his acting career outside of it. I'm sure he did some dramatic roles, but I think most he's primarily known as a comedian. So when he was uh, when he popped up in this role, um, it's the whole like subversion of the John Ritter role that that we expected to see when he's at first, he seems so he seems almost like uh, Jack Tripper, which was his character from three's company. He's very, um, he's very happy and pleasant and kind and considerate. uh, But he's got that hidden darkness and it was really, I know I do remember my initial viewing of this one because I had such a visceral reaction to uh, John Ritter of all people. Like when the way he delivers that first line to Buffy, when he's like, do you want me to slap that smart mouth or whatever? Just the way he goes from, uh, you know, pleasant uh, boyfriend material to super dark and threatening. Um, I don't know. That was that was really powerful to me as someone who grew up watching him on Three's Company. Um, what was your reaction since you didn't watch Three's Company? What was your reaction to that character like on your first viewing? You talked about how the show hides it for so long that he's a robot. Do you remember what it was like when you were first watching? Did you did you believe? Did the show trick you into thinking she had actually killed a regular person? Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I don't recall that specifically, but um, I, I knew of, like, John Ritter, like, the idea of him, like, on Three's Company, I guess, cause, just because it's one of those things that's been referenced in pop culture, yeah. like, so much over the years. It's, like, part of one of those things that's hard to escape. So I saw John Ritter in the credits. I was like, oh, that must be John Ritter. And so it's one of those things where, like, as as writers and and like the cast casting of him is a great way to trick the audience just even on paper before he's even in the show like um for him to be set up to be such a pleasant guy is like it it seems like great casting and then for that reveal to change is like great acting uh and, and writing as well but he just does it so well i i don't like i said i wish i had more uh reference points of of his to to make but um i i just it's it's really all falls on, on Buffy, on us following Buffy's uh, arc through this episode of us needing to understand where she's coming from emotionally mm-hmm. um, to wanting her to basically fight this guy to feeling how devastated she is when she thinks that he's dead into not feeling entirely like 
relieved when he's back. Like, you should feel like, well, at least I didn't kill a person. But at the end of it all, she's just like, I need to watch a movie. Let's escape from all of this. None of this was good, even though I didn't kill somebody. My mom's sleeping with somebody. Even a ro- Basically, it's like, I hate that my mom has a vibrator. That's what, that's what this episode amounts to. Oh, man. So this episode was, was Buffy breaking her mom's vibrator? That's terrible. That's yeah, terrible. and so Buffy fans out there, uh, next time you buy a vibrator, if you're not naming it Ted, I, I call, I'm calling you out. You, <laughs> maybe you didn't catch that before that this is the episode about the vibrator, but now it is your obligation to you get another sweet Buffy reference in your life. Bring someone new home to use it. You're like, this is Ted, and then the the, the guy's like, oh, like from Buffy, I get it. And now you're married. You're Angela <laughs> Buffy. I mean Buffy and Spike. I mean wherever the relationships go, who knows? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. Um, all right, yeah. So let's talk about Sarah Michelle Gellar and her her performance because um, as I was talking about the, do you want me to slap that smart mouth scene? Uh, that was chilling to me because of John Ritter and the turn that that character took right there. But it was really sold by Sarah Michelle Gellar. We've seen uh, a season and a half at this point of Buffy being a badass, and you know she can she can take care of herself. Uh, but just the way she like her her facial reaction to when he makes that turn uh, and really like crosses that line and gets dark like that, and then following up on that when she tries to tell her mother. I, possibly the most chilling thing in the episode for me. And I, I have well-documented issues with Joyce, <laughs> Joyce Summers. And I, I know that they get addressed as the series series goes along. I am just a little disappointed that it is taking this long. Um, mm-hmm. That at this point I'm still having problems with Joyce, but maybe the most chilling moment of the episode for me is when, uh, Buffy and, and her mom are back home and she tries to tell her mom, yeah, he threatened me. Uh, you know, he said he was going to slap me and her mother's reaction is to like blink for a second and then say, he, he said no such thing. And Sarah Michelle Gellar, like watching Buffy's face just drop when she realizes that her mother is not going to believe her when she tells her this stuff. Mm -hmm. That was pretty brutal. Yeah. Her mom is high on that drug of love and nothing, any, anyone, anything anyone says to her to like go against what Joyce thinks she wants at this moment is is not she's not going to listen to it even from Buffy and it's one of these moments where it's like man all this veiled like quote unquote trouble that Buffy gets in mm-hmm. like that's the reason her mom doesn't trust her like Buffy's always doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing but it's because of this like secret as the slayer that uh you know she has no trust from her mother and and it's such a sad thing. I mean, it's it's a great parallel to feeling like a teenager and feeling misunderstood. Obviously, like your parents aren't going to get you until you grow up and can comfortably say you are who you are because of this. But this is the show. Uh, this is the show begging itself to just let Joyce know about the Slayer thing. Like, yeah. I, I love the comedy on this show. There's a lot of great jokes. There's a lot of like funny, exaggerated stuff visually and tonally. But like even on a story level, this is one of those things where like some people get annoyed by it. I just think it is so funny. It is hilarious to me how much they get through this season and try to try to keep Joyce in the dark until uh, she finds out about Buffy, which is, I guess, in the finale of this season. Um, 
Even like, especially in school hard, everything that happens in that episode, <laughs> everything that happens with Ted, no, we're, she's just going to be able to write it off. Oh my, even in bad eggs. Oh my God. She like is, has a pickaxe and like, oh, it's just a, it was just a gas leak that made you uh, try to kill your daughter and fall asleep on the concrete floor of the school. It, it, you don't worry about why you were there, Joyce. It's hilarious. It's so funny. So when I like first... the show, no, the show must know that we think it's stupid that Joyce doesn't know yet. Yeah. And that, that makes us feel as frustrated as, as Buffy probably does about it, which is the show doing a great job of making us feel like a, uh, unseen 15 year old girl. See, this is what you're so good at, Ken. Uh, I need to have you on, on every episode. You're good at taking what I was going to sort of complain about and putting a positive spin on it, that the show is deliberately, the show knows that we hate the fact that Joyce is not in on the secret and it plays with that to put us in Buffy's head. That is such a positive read. That is such a, such a gracious read on your part. Whereas for me, um, from the very beginning of this podcast, I commented that all the way through Buffy uh, in the early days, I was like the one sort of teenage comedy drama television show trope that annoyed me the most was that the mom, like the parent couldn't know what the hell the kids were going on about. And, uh, yeah, things like spy card or a spy card. I always call it spy card. Good Lord. We, you, my, we're just that, that is conversation with dead people's renaming of that episode from my, now on fans of the show. When my, you refer to spikes for first appearance, <laughs> Card. That's my Freudian slip right there. Anyways, yep. from school hard, and then like particularly this episode, like at the end, I made notes about the end of this episode where, <laughs> with, with Buffy and Joyce sitting on the like swing out on the the front porch, and I I just my suspension of disbelief. I had a real hard time with it. Like at the end of this one, where, what exactly, at at what point, does, is Joyce not able to like just close her eyes like i mean at what point does she start to accept that weird shit is going on mm -hmm. um well it's it's just like think back to any time in your like as you're as a teenager when you're like asking your parents for something that seemed so effing important to you and then just going like no it's not gonna happen and like you feel it, it's something that like you, you like base your social status upon you think it's all like you're gonna live or die if this thing does or doesn't happen and you just feel so unseen and the only thing you can do to connect with your parents in those years is to just do that thing that always makes them feel like you're a young person again that's why like when or like you're a, a literal kid again and not an adult that's why it's like Thelma and Louise again right they're not gonna do something new they're gonna do that thing that made them feel comfortable like they could live a like they can still live under the same roof for a few years as long as Buffy still pretends to be a kid. And after that point, uh, Joyce is going to have to accept that Buffy's an adult, which she'll have to, to get to do for about a year before dropping dead because this show's <laughs> tragic and works with all of us. <laughs> yes, very true. You know, I was actually thinking, um, just because I've got you on the show, I'm, I've got to turn this into a therapy episode. Um, I was thinking as I was rewatching these episodes that, I like intellectually, I get all this like teenagers and their parents stuff. Um, and even on some emotional level, but I have 
growing up, I had a very different relationship. I had a, I also had a single mother, but I had a very different sort of teenager and parent relationship uh, with with my mother than I feel like the typical, like the stuff that you see in teen dramas. So like when we get to the next episode, uh, Bad Eggs, and um, her mother like flips the out over over like her talking on the phone and being dressed late at you know being in her room dressed late at night or whatever mm-hmm. and she she drives her to school and is just going on and on about how she's grounded and she's not going to leave the house like ever again and buffy just taking it like i get that that is the sort of cliche or, or stereotypical teen teenage daughter teen uh you know single mother experience that a lot of viewers probably expect but that is just not the experience that i had and so when i'm watching a scene like that i'm thinking man that is just not the way that it would have gone down between my mother and i like my mother first of all wouldn't have freaked out about that my mother if she did freak out wouldn't have like driven me to school and given me some lecture about how i was grounded and if she had i would not have accepted it <laughs> it was very mm-hmm. rebellious my mother would have said and i guess buffy doesn't necessarily accept it but uh right but like i would have said no no i'm not i'm really not grounded mom thanks <laughs> well and and well and you and i by the time we're 16 17 year old boys we're physically bigger than our moms probably well, yeah. and and to like feel less threatened by them like we could walk out of the house if we wanted to or something right but i think i think to go to an episode earlier from that happening even in ted it it's it's literal emotional horror it's like something like mommy dearest when um you think ted's dead and buffy goes to like exit the window and you believe just as buffy believes the horror that her mom nailed her window yeah, shut like yeah. zero trust whatsoever. And the show lets you feel that for five seconds before going like still have some hope for Joyce. This was, this was the evil patriarchy trying to keep his property of the little girl mm-hmm. in her room because mm-hmm. that's what he wanted to feel safe and not threatened. I'll say it didn't last very long. It wasn't, uh, I mean, it was only a small portion of this single episode, but the the darkness around um the idea that buffy had had killed a human being and it was her mother's boyfriend and we need to talk about the fact that and the cops not listening to yeah, her the yeah, cops yeah. like sort of questioning like buffy is like obviously having an emotional reaction to this but you know she killed a a well-to-do straight white man and so we we as the people in charge as the government full of straight white men we need to really give that guy the benefit of the doubt like there's are you sure a a man could have been been hitting you a small girl yeah, he must never do anything bad i'm a straight white male cop why would i believe another straight white male man not the mailman although i'm sure there's an evil mailman coming up in some episode soon we run out of ideas eventually i get it joss but uh <laughs> no like uh, the uh it, yeah it's it's really terrifying the the prospect even for a few minutes that buffy might have legal repercussions it's like is this the direction this show's going into did right. we just take the uh the monster of the week episode of x-files that that, that brought us into this show and we're now transitioning to a a law and order type of show is that is that what Buffy's turning into as she gets older? I hope not. And then of course no. Ted's a robot and Buffy's still the Slayer and uh, he gets his ass kicked. 
and and as <laughs> as is often the case, the problem just kind of goes away at the end. So there's two things I want to discuss. One, well, there's multiple things I want to discuss. First, I want to ask, this is a serious question for you, Ken, or anybody in the audience. Uh, is there some damn significance to all the items in the vending machine being upside down? This is like the third episode where I've noticed that, where they go, where like Xander will go to get a snack out of the vending machine and all, or at least the majority of like the bags of chips and everything in the vending machine are stacked upside down. Whoa, that you're very observant between that and the door thing. I'm surprised. Like, like, like you said, it's not just these episodes. These have been going on for multiple episodes. It makes me feel like, like, I feel like I watch movies and can interpret directors and, <laughs> and see choices that are made, but I guess not. Maybe Joss just is functioning on a whole other level as a TV show runner. Well, at, at, these are metaphors that I don't get. At one point I thought, is this some weird, like, is it a, a copyright thing? You know, like, can they not show? But usually they'll just, like, if someone has a Coke, but they, they don't want to pay for the sponsorship or, you know, they don't want to pay to show a Coke can on screen, they'll just turn the can around or they'll mm-hmm. put a piece of tape over the or Coke or whatever. But I was thinking, you know, is it to obscure the name Doritos or something like that? But you can, A, you can still clearly read that it's a bag of Doritos. It's just upside down. Uh, and at least in the, I think in the previous episodes, all of the stuff was upside down. But in this one, it was most of it. And right next to it was a bag of maybe Doritos or Oreos or something that was right side up. So clearly they weren't concerned about you being able to make out the brand name. But anyways, it's just so it's recurred a couple times. So I wondered if it if it's a thing. I, I mean, look, you you were in high school more recently than I was. This, this whole vending machine items pack, packaged upside down. Uh, that's not a thing that you remember <laughs> like that. That doesn't mean something, does it? It's not the same as like if kids wear their shoes untied, it's a message. I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> not, not that I can recall. Like this, this show even makes me nostalgic for a time that like I didn't see cause I was in high school after these kids and like they get to go up and get Fritos in between classes in the hall. We had to get it before school or after school <laughs> And the vending machines were turned off in that time. So I had very little time with our vending machines. Wow. See, I'm so old, we didn't even have vending machines in my schools. All right. You win, Angel. (laughs) You're the oldest. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Okay. So another thing, I I said there were a few things I wanted to talk about in this episode. The other uh, is, do you think that it means anything... besides just for the dramatic tension of this specific episode that um, Buffy's like fellow students who consistently over the course of the, the two seasons have ignored, rationalized or completely forgotten about the, the virtually nightly um, and not really very secretive slaying activities that she gets up to. This school is like taken over by vampires and like, a giant monster, a giant rubber monster burst up through the floor of the library and all this stuff goes on. And very few, (laughs) very few of her fellow students ever like give her a, you know, a second glance. And yet rumors spread that she, you know, may have pushed her future stepdad down the stairs and everybody in the school is just really looking at her. Teachers are pointing and whispering, I don't, I don't know. Well, I think it's because we all believe at that point that Ted was still just a guy. So as, any, as long as anything happens in the realm of humanity, of real life stuff, people 
treat it as, as if like it's something to be looked into. But I, I think the show made its point on um, on being able to dismiss a lot of this stuff at the very end of the pilot episode when Giles says uh, a lot of people tend to uh, rewrite the history of things that they can't explain. Right. And I think that's just going to be that's sort of a mantra we need to keep in mind if we don't want to be driven crazy by the fact that crazy stuff happened last week and nobody's still talking about it this week. Right. Yeah. Well, good point. Um, let's see. What else have we got? Here? Oh, apparently- but, but like, but like I said, this is the show, like, like just sort of like getting its feet wet of the idea of being able to like carry arcs over a course of a season. Mm-hmm. Like by the time we hit season three, that's when the show turns great. And it's like, you need to see every episode of this season to really get what's happening in any of them. But I still think here in season two, even though you don't know anything about Angel and Buffy's relationship, you can tune in to bad eggs and be like, okay, so she likes this vampire and some weird stuff is happening in this school. Like, like there, we haven't we haven't gotten there yet. So it's like all the crazy stuff that tends to add up uh, happens when uh, the show feels like it's firing on all cylinders and, and comfortable with itself, which happens when Faith and the Mayor start to come into play. Agreed. Agreed. Um, okay. I guess um, I don't know what else there is to say about this episode. I mean, we get Giles and Jenny start sort of rekindling their romance uh, in this episode mm-hmm. after the trauma that she went through in uh, the dark age, a few episodes back, uh, apparently shooting him in the back with a crossbow is, was just the kick their relationship needed to take it to the next level. Right. Well, and I like the parallel that, um, why Joyce and Ted, if he were a real person wouldn't work is because Ted wants to control Joyce. And, the reason, uh, you know, Jenny comes back to Giles, uh, even though it's in the middle of a vampire showing up, is because, you know, when Giles approached her earlier in the episode and tried to make things better, he he walked away. She said what she needed to say, and he accepted it, and he said, I shouldn't have come in. Like, he let her be the adult woman making, like, decisions for herself that she needed to be, and that's why they're able to rekindle things, because he respects her. They respect each other she just needed to see a side of him that you know could understand that she might see uh things a different way from him like he wanted to keep worrying like 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 you know that's quote unquote the man's job of a relationship is to be able to quote unquote protect the woman and be the provider and 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 the guy that like looks after them like ted supposedly is going to be for joyce but as soon as giles is able to like let go of that narrative like this feminist show about the girl being the superhero like clearly believes in then they're able to like really hook into an adult relationship like uh the end of the episode's implying begins with a bad couple or or with a bad pairing that'll never work out and it ends with a a relationship growing because they understand each other as individuals uh between giles and jenny and of course i recognize the the bookending things there where it opens with uh, Ted and Joyce and it closes on uh, Giles and Jenny. But so I knew that was kind of, I, I mean, I recognized that was a thing this episode was doing, but it didn't even like, as I was taking all my notes and everything, I didn't even register that uh, there was also the contrasting of 
Giles being willing to let Jenny, you know, be her own woman, whereas Ted obviously is not wired that way, as he says a couple times. Yeah, I love I love all the foreshadowing. Yeah. Uh, what else? What else did you say? Oh, she's like every house should have one of these, as yeah. if he's just a robot that can be sold. That's pretty funny. And his coworker says, "Oh, nobody outsells the machine." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, in an episode that features characters pairing up, we've got uh, further closet smooching from Sander and Cordelia. Mm-hmm. Um, what it, what did you think cast your mind back again to 2010 what did you think about that pairing the the Xander and Cordy pairing I, it, I love the what's my line moments where they just where the music goes in and they kiss each other so melodramatic uh, yeah it's so funny and, and it makes so much sense when it happens but I, the first time it happened I did not see it coming right um, but but now that you're in it, you're like, oh, they've always had this energy for each other. They just didn't know what to do with it. You know, uh, you and uh, I forget your all your guest names. I'm sure as they return, I'll remember everyone's name. But uh, she was commenting. You and her were commenting a few weeks ago on when Xander took his shirt off. It's like, wow, he's out. Like, he's oh, a good Teresa. guy. Teresa yes, for yes. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, Cordelia is obviously the the stunner in school. And uh, like those two. It, it makes sense if, if on no other personality level, on a hormonal, confused teen level, they are so confused clearly by what they're saying yeah. in uh, contrast to their actions that it it it, it makes sense hilariously. I, I I'm a big fan of it, um, and it also uh, you know it it makes a case for negging. All those pickup artists are right. Just. It, <laughs> And and how ironic is it that the most um, the most expected, the most normalized uh, relationship in society at this point in the late 90s, uh, the one that most people wouldn't be surprised by, uh, the hormonal straight couple uh, making out is the only one that's happening in a closet. They they're the they have not come out of the closet about their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that's a statement, but they sure say closet a lot and make sure it happens in there. So I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, uh, the show obviously is going to go there in a more, much more pointed way in future seasons, but yeah, I feel like they do, they use the word closet like a dozen times over these two episodes. So it had to have crossed somebody's mind as they were writing it. So, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, overall, this episode, I would say I I have fond memories. Like I like this episode almost entirely for uh, John Ritter and Sarah Michelle Gellar's performances. Um, you brought up some very good points about the contrast between Giles and Ted, um, but uh, overall, like I'm a little disappointed with the end. Not only for the weird suspension of disbelief that you know Joyce just accepts that. Oh, that was another thing I wanted to talk about the super inconsistent like post-mortem <laughs> procedures in Sunnydale. So I think Angel <laughs> has said in a couple of episodes, I think it has been stated a couple of times that vampires typically rise 24 hours after they're turned. Right. <laughs> and yet. Sure. If you say so. I, I, I'm almost positive. The show has said that a few times. Um, and so Buffy is always like going to the cemetery and waiting for a vampire to rise. Um, 
like obviously in the real world, bodies aren't typically put in the ground within 24 hours and they usually are autopsied or, you know, like embalmed before that. And so, okay, fine. I'll let all that go for the sake of this. But so if we accept in Sunnydale, for whatever reason, bodies are rushed into the graveyard as quickly as possible so that they can turn in their coffin and rise up the following night. Why did robot Ted just sit on the slab for like a full day, apparently, before he just stood up and walked out? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, again, you could fan it based on the end of school hard and that the government officials and the people for, uh, running things in the city might know more than, uh, than they're letting on to the public. Uh -huh. um, but my, I've always been a bad geek in that sense where like, I love like nerdy things and I'll love studying art and all that stuff. But when it comes to like rules and consistencies and stuff like that, I, I never even give it a, much of a consideration whatsoever. I'm, I, I really only care about the progression of the characters and what the show is trying to say episodically or overall like that. Th for some reason, little things like that, like when you point them out, I'm like, Oh, that does make sense. That is a little inconsistent, but uh, it, it does not. I mean, like I said, my favorite show is lost. I mean, if I got hung up on, the inconsistencies and weirdness surrounding some of the stuff that is said and done in that show, then uh, I wouldn't be able to process or any of it, let alone get past like the third season. So <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I, I just sort of don't put too much stock in that stuff, but I see what you're saying and it's, it's fun to think about. I mean, and it's, it's also fun to rewrite and fan wank. Yeah. A, an awful lot of this stuff is, are not even like really genuine nitpicks of mine because I'm, I'm much more like you. I typically, I just sort of absorb pop culture and, and enjoy it. And I don't tend to, I mean, of course I'm saying this the day after the season two premiere of Westworld, where I pour over every detail of every word, every character says, but normally um, I just enjoy the story that's being told, which I feel like is a thing that like the Whedon verse tends to favor uh, storytelling and theme and like emotional consistency more than it does like details like dates, for example, which I've called out several times on this podcast, but it's just the nature of doing a podcast like this. So many years after the fact, I feel like I, to, to strike up a conversation, I want to point out all these little things that the show misses, but no, I, I hear you. I think I, I don't think it's necessarily your job to call out the show, but it is fun to call out the show. <laughs> if, if calling out the show is fun, I think your only job is to have fun with this podcast. And I, I, it, I mean, we're having fun right now. So bring on the inconsistencies. Let's call them out in every episode from now on, because I've got an amusing fan wank for all of it, Paul. <laughs> as soon as I decide a show is good or a movie is good, I'm like, no, it makes sense. And here's why whether it does or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move into bad eggs then and see if we can find some inconsistent. Let's see how you can fan wank stuff in bad eggs. Speaking of inconsistencies, this is not as good an episode as Ted. I don't think. Okay. I think thank for, you. I, I think for as good as, as monster of the week episodes can get, Ted is like one of the better Buffy ones. And this one feels closer in line to what, where we were at in season one. But but I appreciate it. It's so weird because I, I, I think I mentioned on a previous episode that um, I was aware that Ted was coming up. I don't know if I named it specifically, but 
<clears throat> I do remember feeling the, the, the looming presence of Ted in my future as I've been doing this podcast. And my memory was that Ted was a really terrible episode. Um, I just, for some reason, I just remembered that the John Ritter as a robot was really awful. And that's clearly not the case. I have some problems with it. There's a lot of suspension of disbelief. I feel like the end, definitely the explanation of what the hell Ted was, that was really rushed at the end. But Oh God. Yes. It, it really, I, I think that's so funny. Like how, again, how much of this show works for me is all based on characters and their revelations and their journey. So it, it, I could not help but laugh when I realized when we got to the end of the episode of Ted that the show had to do the procedural law and order thing, the CSI thing of explaining what just happened in the episode yeah. to you. Yeah. Xander tells the story of Ted's life because if not, we would have all just been like assuming we could put it together. Like, well, I guess if the four wives were down there and he's a robot, some guy made him a long time ago. I don't know. That might've, <laughs> it might've been more fun to pour over it. Like people do out of our aspects of lost, but I just thought it was really funny that the show was basically like, yeah, we, we did what we needed to with the characters and here's an explanation. D- d- be, be fine with this. Yeah. It really like in the last like 15 seconds, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, all of that aside, it was an enjoyable episode. It was much better. As I've, I've said a few times now, the episode is much better than its reputation. Bad eggs. I'm not sure I'm going to give that to bad eggs is kind of, I feel like bad eggs is the season two equivalent of teacher's pet. Oh yeah, Absolutely. And like, the, uh, which also heavily feature eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe oh, the, that... maybe these are the eggs that we saw starting to have. No, they're not. They're absolutely not the praying mantis eggs, but <laughs> still. Um, it's the show uh, making some sort of comment on feminism and, uh, and ovaries. Um, you know, <laughs> the eggs are under the desk in season one. The eggs are like taking over the teachers. I guess the show's scared of women now that I think about it, even though a woman's a superhero. There may be a controversial piece of information uh, that I disclose during our discussion of this episode. I'm not sure. By the time we're done with this episode, I may uh, I may let slip something that will put me on some people's hit lists. But we'll see. We'll see if I go by there. The, by the way, Buffy fans who uh, have heard me now on this podcast and never on anything else, I really hope it's clear when I'm being ridiculous or, or saying something ironic. Like, I don't think... <laughs> This show has anything against women. Uh, I'm usually joking when I say something that you don't agree with, listeners, and I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> he is a stand-up comic, people. Yeah, but but if you're angry about something, feel free to tweet me at the Ken Edwards Ken with two ends. That'll be great. I would love to see you get your panties in a bunch. Oh wait, let's say boxers in a bunch because we're feminists. And uh, over some detail that I misconstrued jokingly, I would love that. <laughs> I was going to give you the option of backing out of giving your information at the end of the episode, uh, but there you go. You've outed yourself. And I've I've already said I'm, I'm I've already said I'm never editing another episode of a podcast again, <laughs> which is clearly not true because we're being plagued by audio issues in this very episode. Anyways, bad eggs. Paul's turning into Ted in front of my eyes, yeah, fr- or beside my ears, I should say. Yeah. So uh, I already mentioned Lyle Gorch uh, makes his first appearance in this episode, um, and and his brother makes his first and last appearance. So. This Lyle and Tector, which is a crazy name, Lyle and Tector Gorch, the two um, 
Texan vampire siblings, uh, not even remotely veiled reference to characters of the same name from uh, Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Were you aware of that? I did not pick up on that. Nope. The two of the characters in that film were Lyle and Tector Gorch. Um, and The Wild Bunch is one of Whedon's favorite films. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that uh, The Wild Bunch featured a character named Pike, and Pike was the name of Luke Perry's character in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer film. Oh, wow. And another character in The Wild Bunch was named Angel. Oh. So The Wild Bunch is the Rosetta Stone of the Whedonverse. If we would just do an episode of this podcast where we break down the wild bunch uh we would understand all of the hidden context of the entire series of buffy the vampire slayer nice i like it it's like a perfectly like the inner workings of the buffy the vampire slayer clock are the (laughs) cog that is the wild bunch which i which i am which i regret saying especially since i've spent the last week driving all around texas is uh a movie i've never seen really Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a great film. You should check it out. You and I will have to do a podcast about the wild bunch at some point now. We shall Geek Um, challenge geek challenge. All right. Uh, so what have you got to say about this episode, man? Okay. Uh, see, I enjoyed Ted so much that I'm like, what happens in this episode again? (laughs) Um, it's, it's another episode that's bookended with characters making out, maybe not immediately with Cordy and Xander, but pretty close. And then, uh, uh, like I said, they're they're they don't feel safe being out in the open uh, with their closeted relationship. But uh, Angel and Buffy are only safe to uh, see each other when she's grounded and basically jailed inside her home. Yeah. Um, I don't know what that's saying though, and I, I I really just feel like this episode is here to set up the idea that hey, teenagers you need to know that uh, there are consequences to having sex and, and uh, just get all, all that on the table and, and see like how, um, how horny and hormonal and confused teenagers are like uh, it's, it's there in the beginning where uh, Joyce says where Buffy doesn't get Joyce's dress. And she's like, would you get distracted by a boy? That's the only thing about Joyce that really bothers me on this show is over and over even with the egg, she's like, um, uh, just wait until it starts dating. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what does jo- we we've followed this character for now a year and a half of her school life. Joyce knows none of, of Buffy's like dating life. Like, right. what, what is Joyce so plagued by? <laughs> for all Joyce knows, Buffy is like a loser, like punk that goes out and gets in trouble and like spray paints and like skips class and like. Not, isn't going out on dates at late at night. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of those, uh, cliche parent things that doesn't really track in the show. Cause you're right. She has no reason to, well, I, she's never met any of the boys that like Buffy has tried dating for single episodes, I think, but I'm not entirely sure Joyce has ever met any of those boys. So, yeah, I don't know if the, uh, boy who died on the first date came came by and i i guess has joyce joyce has met angel but doesn't know she did anything of, okay yeah she met angel and 
And that was actually one of the better like Joyce moments for me because there was a real, um, is it Christine Sutherland? That's the actress's name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I loved her performance in that scene because she really, she really had a sort of, she tensed up and she looked really uncomfortable with the notion that this, this boy who is clearly much yeah, older than an her old daughter, man. <laughs> um, is in her house and she didn't know, like that was a great scene between the two of them. But even so like Buffy completely played that off as they're not dating that, you know, they're not a thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. But so the, the sort of on the face of it metaphor of the episode, the whole teen pregnancy and uh, you know, there are consequences to sex and all that stuff as a sort of after school special. That's really kind of uh, just cliche and a little boring. And it, I think it's even demonstrated by the, the gimmick of making these kids care for eggs because it's really mm-hmm. like, that's not well thought out at all. Um, I guess this is a thing that high schools actually did. I I never experienced this particular thing, but the fact that like Buffy has a checklist and that checklist includes burp your egg and put and change your eggs diapers. Those are things. I mean, she just checked those off. She didn't do a damn thing with that egg. She just checked the lists, the things off the list. And I'm mm-hmm. sure all of the kids were doing that. So as, as a, as an instruction method, this episode's, uh, idea of giving these kids eggs that they have to take care of is completely like irrational and and pointless. Um, yeah, I mean, I could see it being something like that has been done because, like, just the idea of carrying an egg around is like it's a fragile thing. Make sure it doesn't break. I could see how that's supposed to correlate into like understanding baby care in some way, uh-huh. but I mean, it's usually just like the baby doll. Um, that that they were giving out um when like i was in high school i didn't have to deal with that but i've heard of other schools doing that Mm -hmm. um i i think the egg is just a fun way for them to play with their alien imagery and um uh uh, what is it the uh um what's the other movie i'm thinking of invasion of the body snatchers sort of story references yeah so i mean like I said, the after-school specialness of it is kind of just whatever. It's there. I, it's not especially successful, in my opinion. Uh, the the larger role that this episode serves, and you know, first viewing, people who are watching this for the first time won't necessarily get this until later. But it's very cl- it's it's clearly setting up something that's about to happen in the series. Um, the thing is, the episode is structured in such a way that it doesn't really feel like foreshadowing. Like there's no, there's no sense of foreboding or there's no indication that this is anything more than just a monster of the week episode. And the actual monster of the week is so sort of laughable. Like I gave, I gave a prophecy girl a hard time for the rubber monster that pops out of the, Hellmouth underneath the library. That was really atrocious, in my opinion. And this episode has another one of those. Um, like the actual monster of the week in this episode is is laughable. Uh, it's not particularly memorable, and so it's really only in hindsight, I guess, that this episode has any kind of weight to it. Like once certain things happen, uh, 
in the series in the season you can look back on this episode and say oh I, I i get the point now i see what they were doing yeah i mean i'm i'm gonna i don't know if it's disagreeing or just we see it different ways but like i adore i adore these quote-unquote bad effects i thought i thought in prophecy girl that thing looked exactly like they wanted it to. It's ridiculous. It's silly. It's so in line with like what the show tone is. It's just without the CGI effects that would make it look polished and boring today. Like I, I love this practical stuff. Like especially just a big rubber eye on the floor, and they out, add a groan roar over it. <laughs> that is hilarious stuff. Like that, and like the the reptile boy, like reptile thing all, all of that is like that's like part of the bread and butter of, of the buffy verse to me is like seeing no matter how good or bad it is the makeup effects like on you know the guy with the shark head in a few seasons like that's just as ridiculous as this eye in the floor even though it's sort of done more convincingly i i i just get a kick out of all of it when this show is like going back and forth between its uh, like crazy genre stuff, like how it'd be a quiet scene and then it cuts to Joyce and Giles like marching like zombies to the dramatic music, I just laugh out loud. Like, um, I, I, I just can't get enough of how cheesy and corny it knows it's being sometimes, and and like the uh, little alien uh, xenomorph type thing that like is going around Buffy's room before she stabs it. I just think those effects are so, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if they're bad. I, to me, they look what they were like, what they were going for. <laughs> okay. So uh, that's all great. And I, I guess I agree with you. I would see, you are making me feel like I'm much more of a curmudgeon on this episode. <laughs> I know. Are you, do you enjoy this show, Paul? <laughs> but but like like the the reptile creature uh, whose name I suddenly can't remember, but uh, from Reptile Boy, um, I actually commented on liking that. I thought the the practical effects in that were great, and there have been practical effects on this show that I I love. Actually, most of the practical effects are better than anything they ever do digitally on this show. It's just occasionally, like I don't I. <laughs> I wish that I could embrace the sort of fifties or sixties, uh, sci-fi television era practical effects that they get, that they throw in here occasionally, like the, the beast that pops up under the library that you could practically see the production assistants off, off screen with a stick and a string <laughs> waving the tentacles around. Like <laughs> sometimes I'm able to really enjoy that on this show. I re that really just made me roll my eyes. And then you're right in this one, the monster is just like late, a latex sheet on the ground with a big fake eye in it. And they shake it or they put Vaseline on it and shake it around. And someone's moaning into the microphone. I was like, Oh man, not a high point of the series, but oh, see, see, I think, I think they're, like I think that's how it was pitched. I don't think it's like uh, I don't think it's like we need to make this look amazing. Let's put a lot of budget into this. I think they're in the room going like, oh, and we'll it'll just be an eye on the floor. It'll look so stupid and ridiculous. And the fact that we're making this a conversation about sex all centered around a rubber eye on the floor that is hilarious. That's how I like to imagine these writers' rooms happening. Oh man, you're you're probably right. And I'm I'm, I mean. You talked about the guy with the shark head and like I've said many times, I'm a, 
I'm a bigger fan of Angel the series than I am of Buffy, but Angel has just as many patently ridiculous, goofy monster of the week sort of things. So you're right. The show never takes it. Well, that's I, I won't say it never takes itself too seriously. It absolutely does a few times. But in terms of their monsters of the week, I guess I, I should cut it some slack. But I think the werewolves and the vampires, arguably the two biggest presences are or recurring presences of like effects uh-huh. are maybe some of the least convincing and worst. Like the fact that uh, every I, I angel... never I never warm up to their their werewolves, man. I, I'm. I'm super picky about my werewolves and this show never gets them right as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That's just one of those cases where I'm like, they just don't have the budget to do this. Right. So I'm going to accept this on a story level. But the the one thing that does consistently annoy me with the effects is that, uh, we are allowed to know what spike and angel and Drusilla look like without vamp face, but, uh, not these two Texas idiots like <laughs> like we need to they they can't just have regular people faces too that allow them to function like vampires out in the world like we need to see them as vampires all the time i mean maybe one of them had a normal face at the beginning of this episode yeah you when see, he's you, flirt- yeah you first see lyle in regular face but from then on he's always in vamp face yeah i mean i i think that's that feels like the show talking down to us that we wouldn't be able to recognize people more than once as vampires without vamp face if they're not gorgeous men Right, right. Um, But whatever. Okay, so like I'm, I'm. It feels appropriate to talk about the big controversial thing, um, since you've mentioned the whole sort of this. These two episodes focus on sex or sexuality or sexual topics. Uh, So here's my confession, and anyone who's listening who has followed me through fandom for more than a minute has probably heard this about me, but I am not a Marty Noxon fan. And, uh, Marty Noxon is a major name, uh, in the Whedon verse in mutant enemy. She's, uh, she, I mean, she gets her start here in season two. She was a writer or co-writer on, um, the previous two episodes, what's my line? I think that was her, I think that was the first, uh, that we see her. And then she, uh, is the sole writer credited for bad eggs. Um, and, uh, she goes on to become, uh, uh, one of the main writers on staff. Uh, she becomes showrunner at a certain point. Like she, Marty Noxon's a big name in the series and, there is controversy attached to her. She's, she's running the ship when some stuff happens that sort of divided the fandom. And, and I definitely have my issues with that. We'll get to that when it happens, but um, I'm just not a fan of like her particular stories, like the stories that she tells. It seems like um 95% of the stories that she is involved in on this series focus um, inordinately on issues of sex, sexuality, or sexual abuse um, to the point where it, to me, it just sort of becomes a cliche when I see Marty Noxon's name pop up in the writer position. I'm like, oh, well, I guess I know what this episode's going to be about. Um, And yeah, I mean, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want (laughs) to... 
Do you want to jump in there? Do you have any awareness or familiarity with Marty Noxon? Are you, do you know what her track record is on the show? I don't. I, I just know her as one of these names that we see over and over again. Espenson, Goddard, Whedon, yeah. Noxon, you know, just one of the heavy hitters, one of the Avengers of this yes. universe, you know? Yeah. Um, but the only thing I would have to say is that, like, um, just from, you know, taking classes and, and, and studying, I mean, it sounds stupid to say studying podcasts, but I guess essentially <laughs> that's what a lot of your listeners are doing right now, are... Uh, <laughs> like listening to conversations about writer's room specifically with genre TV. Um, most of this stuff is set up as a group, like the, the entire writer's room, like if I were willing to guess, and if any, like, you know, anyone who's in the Whedon verse, like, uh, uh, was ever part of it. And here's this, I would love for you to be able to confirm or, or to deny this, but my understanding with how, these types of shows work are like they got together for a few weeks before they started actually like writing and discussed the layout of the, of the season. And then they would, they, they generally, and I'm not just talking about with Buffy here. I'm talking about like, I've heard people say this for shows. I don't even like, not just shows I watch like lost and Buffy, but like shows I don't even watch supernatural does this. Uh, um, many have done this. They, they'll, uh, come up with each individual episode pretty much together as a concept. And, and then it's basically like they all get paid the same amount unless they have executive producer credit, the writers do, and they all get their own assigned script. So while a certain writer may have a um, their name on a certain episode, that's really just there in a legal sense to make sure they get their uh, uh, paycheck the right way. So make sure everybody gets the same amount of money because they have all come up with it together, every beat of all of these episodes. Now there may be variations in certain, um, uh, artistic choices, like that certain type of joke someone will make. Whoever's actually writing that script might get to input something that they are independently a fan of or have a tendency towards doing. And maybe they just felt as a room that, you know, sexual abuse or, or sex and all of this stuff, is something that they as a group wanted to talk about with the show, but perhaps there's something about Marty Noxon's life or career previous to the show where they have all agreed that like, Hey, when we allow Marty to put this stuff on paper, she really, uh, um, says it in the best, most direct way. And on top of that, every single episode of the show was rewritten by Joss Whedon, essentially. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I mean, I mean and, until later seasons where he started doing other work. But up until Angel starts, my understanding is that, you know, uh, and it's the same with showrunners. I, I know Matt Weiner did this. Damon Lindelof did this of like after they uh, turn in their final script, then the, the executive producers and showrunners will go through and edit it however they want. So it always feels weird to me. Uh, to blame writers in TV in the same way that we're able to blame writers in movies because uh, it's it's always such a group effort. I, I think problems with the show are more problems with how things work out than with any sort of individual that we could blame, whether we're talking about this or anything else in the show. Um, I mean, you're not wrong in all of that stuff. I, I... I recognize the fact that there that mutant enemy has a writer's room. There was a core writing staff. Uh, I know that John, 
I don't know the full extent of this. Hopefully future guests or people on the Facebook group can, can come in and if they've got more information on this can clarify, but I, I'm sure that Joss like took a pass at everything. Um, he, he obviously approves the scripts that go through. Uh, he touches up where he needs to. I don't know how detailed he got with any of that. I do know in this particular instance, this was a script that she pitched. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I, not, I did not mean to call you out for like, I'm not saying you're wrong about any of this. I hear exactly what you're saying. And now looking at the list of episodes that she's written, mm -hmm. I, I see the correlation of what you're talking about completely. Um, I just was sort of giving that, uh, putting that idea out there, not only to give anyone the benefit of the doubt in the future, but also just in case anyone is listening and, and, and genuinely thinks it's just like, uh, you know, the show takes it one writer at a time and, and every writer comes up with their own thing. Just, just letting people know that it's, it's more of a group effort than the credits might make it look like sometimes. Right. Absolutely. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure certainly at, certainly what you were describing i think probably becomes even more of an issue in in seasons going forward um where they really zero in on a core group of writers and they um they will break a, a season long arc and they'll figure out what the major beats of that season are going to be and then they'll they'll probably i'm sure at a certain point when they decided that you know for the the sixth episode of this season we really want to zero in on the relationship between these two characters who in this room is best to cover that marty i think marty noxon needs to be the one that kind of focuses on that i'm sure that becomes a thing i don't know that that was going on at this point but in any case i i i just I come to associate, I gradually came to associate Marty Noxon's name in the writer position with stories that focus um, on issues of sex or sexuality or um, I, I, I'm struggling to think of a better word. I don't want to say uh, like perversion or, or sexual deviancy or, or anything like that. But I mean, um, abusive sexual situations I don't know. I, I'm not, I've said before, I'm in no way, shape or form approved. Like these things don't offend me on a personal level. That's not what this is about. It's just, it's such a distinguishable element of, I feel like most of the stories that she's involved in that I, I gradually became, I don't know, bored by it or disinterested in it or occasionally even annoyed by it. I, I'm, I'm not sure how to define it. This is one of the, this is going to be one of the learning curves for me over the course of this podcast is maybe figuring out if I true, if I really do have an issue with her stories or if I'm just, you know, projecting, I don't know. Uh, well, 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 that's a fun thing about this show is the being able to continually like go back to things that we're assuming mm -hmm. since you're taking it. So like slowly week by week. Yeah. Um, also, is this her first credited episode? No, she, she was co-writer. She was, um, I think she's listed, but she may not have even gotten on screen credit as a co-writer for what's my line part one. And then she was a credited writer for what's my line part two. Okay. And, and so this is also following Ted, which has the credit of not only Whedon, but Greenwald as well. So right. it's yeah. like anytime you're following something that needed to bring in like, you know, the big guy. 
to, yeah, yeah. to take enough credit on something is, is going to be a task. And she, she has said, she'd said in interviews about like the writing of this episode that she did not at the time have a lot of familiarity with sort of a fantasy and sci-fi fiction. Um, that's not really where her background was. And so, you know, the, the invasion of the body snatchers, element of this story which seems pretty standard and cliche pretty easy yeah yeah i I don't you know i I don't want to come off as marty knox and bashing even though i'm i'm genuinely not a fan of hers um but you know this was her first full i guess solicited script for the series and uh it's it's not a i don't think this is as bad as teacher's pet let me put it that way yeah 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 well i mean and you you have a point it's like when you compare the moment of like like let's compare um the reveal of sid the dummy not being the killer or us finding (laughs) out that ted uh isn't a person and he's back and he's a robot like those are unpredictable twists in like the complete opposite direction than uh, us finding out that willow is talking to buffy on the phone and her egg is already hatched like you saw yeah. that coming a mile away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, we can't let this episode go by without mentioning the name. Uh, I, I can say it when I'm not reading it. For some reason, when I'm reading the word Bezor or Bezor, how do they pronounce mm-hmm. it in the episode? I can't remember. Anyways, uh, so that's the name they attach. Bozo. Atta- Bozo, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's the name they attach to the the monster of the week here. And man, I struggle with that because uh, hopefully, Ken, you remember where we've seen that term before. Uh, I, I not off the top of my head. Where where is that? I assume, is that okay. an Avatar thing? No, no, no. Uh, um, so the the actual definition. I'm not sure why they chose this name. I guess maybe someone just thought it sounded like a cool demon name. But um, the definition of a Bazaar is a mass found trapped in the gastrointestinal system, though it can occur in other locations. Uh, an indigestible object introduced intentionally into the digestive system. Um, none of those things really have anything to do with the monster of the week here. So I, I feel like they probably just picked that name because they thought it sounded like a cool demon. Uh, but I will forever associate that with issue 17 of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. <laughs> Uh, because that was the the uh, issue Calliope and dealt with uh, the author that was um, trading. He traded a bazaar of hair, which is actually called a tricto bazaar, uh, to like a, I think it was just an, another writer, but it was kind of like a wizard for. Uh, he traded that for the muse Calliope to raise his his career as a writer. Do you remember? Uh, do you remember I... that at all? I have not read the Sandman series, but I, I have to imagine Whedon has and probably wanted to take some names from that, too, just like he did the Wild Bunch. I thought, for some reason, I thought we had you involved in our, uh, on Gobbledy Geek, on our whole Sandman thing. Were you never, did you never join us for an episode of that? I did not. Oh, man, we need to revisit. We need to do it all over again and have you on as a guest for uh, that. No, it's okay. I, I got the uh, companion book, so I know it all. <laughs> the Sandman Companion by High Bender? That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, now it, now it's had a mention on this podcast. Anyways, um, so aside from my um, 
uh, alienating myself from at least half of the fan base by mentioning I'm not a fan of Marty Noxon. What else do? What else is there in this episode worth discussing? Um, what is there? I I I don't. There's not, I don't know. <laughs> there's re- there's really not a lot. Um, Jonathan makes another appearance. Jonathan yeah. is back once again. He's simply cannon fodder for some horrible event to take place. Uh, in this in this case, he's just another zombie victim of the monster of the week. Uh, he also goes unnamed again in this episode. He's popped up several times. He's only been named as Jonathan once on screen in this one. He does get named in the credits uh, as something other than hostage boy. Number one or whatever they typically credit him as uh, they do name him Jonathan in the credits. Unfortunately, they misspell his name. <laughs> they spell, <laughs> they spell it Jonathan, like J O H N like John, a thon. <laughs> so they spell his name in the credits. Well, he's a loser. That's what he deserves. <laughs> oh, geez. Look at you, you bastard. <laughs> Poor Jonathan. Um, he'll, he'll get his, his day someday. Someday, maybe. Um, what else do we get? They officially, I guess, identify Willow as Jewish in this episode, although her last oh, name. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Her last name's Rosenberg, so I'm not sure there was really a question there, but. Um, I, my, they had a great line that made me LOL, which I don't really do when I'm alone, but if something's <laughs> funny enough, I, I will laugh. I love, uh, when Buffy's absent for the class where they get the eggs and she's like, what did he say? And, and Willow's like, he told us to give you this. And Buffy's like, I, I forget exactly it's... what it is, but she's like, for a punishment, this is very abstract. <laughs> I've actually, yeah, I pulled that quote out as far as punishments go. This is fairly abstract. <laughs> yeah. that's really good um uh let's see oh i've just got a note about the anticlimactic <laughs> boss battle D- regardless of whether or not the effects the like monster effects were good so we know that you're a fan of plastic sheeting with a big rubber eye but just the final boss battle um this is one of the more anticlimactic ones that I think the series ever does. Maybe you appreciate this in the same way you appreciate the rubber effects. I don't know, but here we get like Buffy gets drug into the, the hole in the ground. Um, we get to see Lyle and all the, the sort of zombie students just stare dramatically dead into space <laughs> off camera. And we hear some, some like punching sound effects or whatever. And then, the creature's eye rolls back in its head and Buffy crawls back out of the ground. And that was it. That was like the big final battle. Yeah. I mean, I, I did love that. I mean, that's a thing that's done, you know, in so many things that I can think of off the top of my head, but you know, I got to see Buffy do it. You know, Buffy's just as badass as, as anyone else, as any other badass character we've seen do it. And I didn't complain when Hercules did it. I didn't complain when Drax did it. <laughs> oh geez. Not going to complain when Buffy does it. But see, you do. But the point is, you didn't see Buffy do it. It happened all off camera. Well, yeah, I just mean her triumph. Like everyone thinking she was gone, then she triumphantly crawls out of the hole covered in blood, not giving a ready to slay some more vamps. Like it it only would have been better if Lyle would have been taken down in that moment too. (laughs) See, see, Lyle, I can't. He gets at least. He comes back at least once more in the series. I don't remember if that's this season or next season. And I don't know if it's more than once. I just know that, um, he's one of the rare examples of like 
just a kind of minion vampire or just one of the sort of vampire of the week guys that pops up in multiple episodes. Yeah, I found I just found him and his brother, I guess he's his brother, to be yeah. super, super boring. <laughs> I mean, they weren't necessarily exciting, but I thought he was funny. Like the eye the eye that in the floor had more character than those guys. <laughs> Ouch. All right. Fair enough. Um <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what else happens in this. Uh, We've done it. We've done That's bad eggs, everybody. That's a wrap on bad eggs. Now all the listeners applaud as much as everyone working on that episode. Like, yay, we can get back to storytelling. (laughs) Oh, geez. All right. Um, Yeah, is there anything else about uh, anything that you want to mention before we head out? Well, I mean, it's just... You mentioned the, the way I I can't not overinterpret meta ness uh-huh. out of any artistic situation, and it's just one of these things where like you know, the two episodes back to back about the frustration of having uh, uh, sexual desires mm-hmm. and how that affects decisions later in life, and you know we don't need to get into it, but. You know, it's interesting to see that Joss was exploring something that he never was really able to come to terms with in a way that he could overcome for himself based on what we have found last found out last year was going on at certain points in the series uh, behind the scenes with uh, some of the women he was working with. And and I'm not accusing him of anything outright. I just know that uh, he, he it seems as if Joss had some some power uh, uh, difficulties that he did not check as a straight white male in the patriarchy, who is the boss um, uh, that he was able to take advantage of at the time that nobody really called him out for, because that was the world we lived in where it seemed uh, he could get away with stuff like that. Even though a part of him knew when he was creating characters like Ted, that that was not a way to behave. And maybe that was his way of like exercising that stuff. It's the same way you can go, Watch uh, episodes of the show Louie and see that there are multiple episodes where uh, Louie's talking about how it is to be a dude and jerk off in front of women. Like he 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 basically is calling himself out in that show. And I think there might be a version of that happening here. It's not it's not an excuse and it's not saying that uh, Joss should have known better. It's it's just saying that, like, hey. Joss is a three-dimensional real person in this world, and there are many uh, uh, facets and layers to all of us. And even though, you know, I I have struggles with things, I have addictions to certain things and and nothing hardcore and no problems as big as uh, anything that might come back to bite me the way uh, stuff came back to bite Wheaton. But, you know, just because I'm aware of some of my problems doesn't mean that... uh, or, or just because I, I continue to uh, act in a certain way does not mean that I'm not aware of some of my more negative tendencies. And I think to be able to see that being explored this early in the series, knowing what we know now about the man himself, that's just uh, incredibly interesting. I mean, Matt Weiner struggled with that uh, with Mad Men, too, as we found out uh, last year. So this Me Too thing uh, is, is really... Um, bringing light to to some of the dimensional layers that these showrunners uh, could work under and get away with in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, 
yeah, the the sort of revelations that dropped about Joss Whedon last year uh, in 2017 uh, is a thing that I've I've kind of steered us away from on, on this podcast. It's a it's a subject that as the as the series both the both Buffy and Angel and this podcast as it progresses, I feel like it's going to become increasingly necessary to to bring that stuff into the conversation. Um, maybe maybe at the end we'll have a big bonus episode where we get to talk about it in context. I don't know, but considering um, considering the issues that I'm struggling with with some of the characters, like in particular Xander, on this rewatch, um, I feel like it's going to be, I feel like we're going to have to bring the subject in at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Like, And Xander, I've, I've heard you, uh, we didn't really have an opportunity in these episodes to talk about some of the stuff you've talked about with Xander before, but I, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about it and I, just in his defense as the character I love, I would just like to reiterate something I said earlier, which is just like, you know, this, this, these are kids like uh-huh. any, <laughs> any, sexual desires or any actions you might take based on uh jealousy or 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 whatever misogyny even are are he's ignorant he's he's not where we are now and and i think the series makes an effort to show how hard it is for somebody to not be an alpha male to still be uh stricken with toxic masculinity the poison uh that society pours on us and what we should believe and expect from ourselves and uh, that what we might even be entitled to, it it goes out of its way to uh, make sure that Xander has a complete journey and sees himself for all that he has been by the seventh season. Yes, it took seven years to get there, but you know, it took uh, many more years than that for these issues uh, that we're talking about uh, with Joss to be addressed. So I, I, again, I just see it all as very realistic. Yeah. And to be clear, um, and, hope- and also, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but like I, I, we're we're naturally compelled by imperfect characters. That's the rise of the antihero over the mm-hmm. past decade of of the golden television we've had. Like Don Draper, Walter White, we we have all the Game of Thrones. We have all decided we don't need our characters to be good or or perfect to be interesting. Like flaws make us want to follow someone way more because it, it we we attach ourselves to them and therefore we project hope onto them because we want to see a better life for ourselves. And I think Buffy and Xander are two shining images of that. And I I I hope that I've made this clear in previous episodes. I maybe not. So uh, I'll state again now just just to to be clear most of my problem like most of the issues I'm having with Xander aren't, it's not so much that I hate the character of Xander now. Like when I talk about these things where I have an issue, I'm struggling with Xander. I'm not saying that, um, I, I don't find that character interesting anymore, or I don't find that character compelling, or I wish he wasn't on the show, or I wish he'd been written another way. A lot Mm -hmm. of, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about here are issues that I have with the, uh, with the show, not the show itself, but like the writers, um, or, or particularly the sort of larger fan base. Um, I've, I've talked about the fact that Xander gets a pass for certain things that he does in these early seasons going forward. And other characters don't necessarily get the same pass. Like 
that's a level of complexity to these characters that is perhaps realistic, but the way that it's framed in to get, if, if I can dip my toes into the metatextual aspect of this, the show gives a pass to certain characters and certain behaviors um, that it doesn't give to others. And the fans give a certain, give passes on certain characters and behaviors that it doesn't to others. And I struggle mm-hmm. with that stuff. So I'm not saying that I, you know, I don't ever want to see Xander in another episode again. I'm saying that I'm seeing behavior in this character um, that, you know, 20 years later is a little more uncomfortable for me to watch. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm no, I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. I, and, and it goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about not getting hung up on details or not even noticing details. It's like, I feel like we can, when you start to bring up that stuff, like from the past when we're like several seasons later or something, it, mm-hmm. I I just keep going back to what was the show trying to comment on? Like, yes, Xander tried to rape Buffy when he was being a wolf, but that was the show just doing an episode trying to comment on toxic masculinity. And uh, it did that. And it, it, it clearly was not making an effort to have a continued conversation about what happens when our best friends who turn into brother figures try to rape us early in our relationship. Like that just wasn't in the goals or that wasn't in the like list of goals for the show. So I'm just, I, uh, for some reason or another, I, I totally get why other people can't let go of certain things because there, there are things that we see in ourselves and certain characters when, when they're dismissed, they're sort of like, affronts to our identity like wait a second if someone Mm -hmm. did that to me and i want someone to be held responsible um i could understand why that upsets people but like like i said just for me for whatever reason i'm just able to go like what was the show trying to say was it successful at that cool let's move on (laughs) all right well said so let's move on and i'll i'll beat this dead horse in a future episode i'm sure (laughs) Ken, uh, this was great. Thank you so much for joining me. I know I've got you down for multiple episodes in the future. So uh, listeners, I I hope you enjoyed it because he he will be back. (laughs) I love being here. I'm glad you asked me to come do this show with you. I'm uh, I'm excited. I'm like, even if I weren't talking about it with you, I'm so excited you're doing the podcast just as an excuse to rewatch the show because it's been such a joy. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you've already told the listeners how they can find you, but one more time, you, know, you want to tell people how they can stalk you online. Absolutely. Um, on Twitter, I'm at the Ken Edwards. That's Ken with two ends. I'm not incredibly active on there anymore, but go ahead and follow me in case I ever slip into that addiction again. <laughs> um, on uh, Instagram, I'm Ken dot Edwards. That's Ken with two ends. And um the main thing in my life I have going on right now is um, I'm in a band called the Alex Jonestown Massacre. We're about to put out an EP. By the time by the time you hear this episode, uh, I think uh, I'll have put the EP on my YouTube. So you can just uh, type in YouTube.com/slash Ken M Edwards. Again, that's Ken two N's one M for Michael because you can't change your YouTube name after you've chosen it once. Um, but, but Ken M Edwards, uh, you'll be able to find the Alex Jones sound massacres EP on there. It's called, I think we're calling it what we do is stupid, which is a take on the germs. What we do is sacred. (laughs) 
and uh, or what we do is secret is is their original title I, I, I i'm sorry but um yeah i i would implore everyone to listen to that and look forward to us touring later in the summer and um uh, the way you can find out about that tour is by following us on Instagram. If you're only going to follow one of the many things I'm shouting out, uh, please follow at the Alex Jonestown Massacre on Instagram. And uh, you'll you'll hear clips, you'll see live video, you'll see tour dates. And uh, we're punks. We're just punk rock. We play cheap shows. So if we're coming near you, please, please come out and you'll I, I promise you you'll have a great time. I genuinely think uh, uh, this band and what I'm doing right now is the best thing I've ever done artistically in my life thus far. So, yeah, that, that's all I got for now. I'm sure I'm sure by the time I'm on other episodes in the future, I'll have uh, made another movie or gone back into stand up and quit my band or, or started a new <laughs> podcast or some shit because I can never just stay on one track. But, hey, isn't that isn't my manic zaniness why you guys are still listening to me? <laughs> you are a rolling stone, Ken. <laughs> you gather no moss. Thank you. I'm so excited that you're back into music. I was I was concerned when when you when you moved and and had to sort of let music go. I was worried. I'm glad that you're back into it. Um, I also would love to see you get back into acting, um, selfishly because I think you're a great actor and uh, and even more selfishly because there had been rumors that I was going to get to act with you at some point and I am not a great actor and I wanted to be elevated by being in your presence but I th- I think that's something that can still happen if if listeners are curious about oh, anything Paul's talking about I uh I starred in a film called AV that's just A/V which is available uh, the full feature film is available on YouTube it's got you know, special effects and, and, and it's almost two hours long. It's, it's a real movie is directed by our mutual friend, Joseph William Lewis. I star in it alongside our friend, Adam Crawford. And, um, you can find that on youtube.com slash toasted schizo. And Joe actually shot my short film that I wrote, directed and star in called the joke, which you can find, um, also on my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Ken M. Edwards, or just type in the joke Ken Edwards in the search bar, or you'll find it. And I appreciate the opportunity for another plug. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, both of those are great, please. People, you should check those out. So um, in the meantime, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There are a number of Buffy podcasts, um, none of them as rambling and um, entertaining, question mark, as this one. So any kind words that you could spare would really help us stand out from the crowd. Uh, if you have any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group. Um, just search for, it's called conversations with conversations with dead people <laughs> just to be extra confusing. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's where I would really like to see these conversations that we start on the podcast continue in a larger forum on the Facebook group. So please join us over there. Uh, next week, it's time to get serious. 
Um, I'm joined by James Roca, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Fresno State and contributor to Slayage, the Journal of Whedon Studies. He's joining me to discuss the one-two punch of episodes 213, Surprise, and 214, Innocence. Um, so that should be a good time for all. Bring your Kleenex. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Writing